through the highs and lows. That's our program for today. Welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. She called us to live to a higher standard each day and to not be satisfied with just throwing a little religion into our lives. That's a shallow substitute for giving God our best. As this series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who were influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Today, we are still continuing our extended series about Jim Elliott's Operation Alka and other events during Elizabeth's time in Ecuador. But this series is just about at an end. And then uh, we'll have some more information coming up soon in the coming week or two about our next series. But today, through the highs and lows, Gateway to Joy 129 is our first Gateway to Joy program, Living One Day at a Time. Later, it's The Missionary's Job, Gateway to Joy 130. Today we hear from musician John Hansen, who wrote the theme music for this series. He'll talk about doing the music and about the subject of dedication. And also today, Tom Howard, Elizabeth's brother, talks about laughter, books, media, attention, composure, and accents. Stay tuned later today. Right now, let's go to Gateway to Joy 129, living one day at a time. What was an Alka woman's day really like? Stay with us and find out. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you this time about living one day at a time with God. I thought maybe you'd like to hear a little bit about an Alka Indian woman's day. I've been telling you something about my own days living in the jungle with Indians. But from my book, The Savage, My Kinsman, I thought I'd read a description of what Mankamo did just one day. I sat in my hammock with my notebook and kept a record, moment by moment, of what she did. I woke about 4.30 to hear a soft cracking sound. Mankama was sitting up in her hammock, peeling manioc. You may remember that manioc is a starchy tuber that is the main item in their diet. Peeling manioc without the use of any implement save her hands. She would tap a stick of manioc all around with another stick, split the skin, and peel it off with her fingers. Another sharp tap on the top of the stick split it into long pieces, which she threw into a pot. Then she blew up the fire and set on her pot. After breakfast, she packed up a basket of plantains, manioc, peanuts, and sweet potatoes, which must have weighed about 70 pounds. I tried to lift it and couldn't. She stooped down with her back to it, pulled the strip of bark up over her head, and heaved herself and the basket up. I accompanied her on the trail. She walked more slowly than she would have done without the basket, but her pace was steady, uphill or down, through rivers and over rocks. Ippa was with us, too. She had as big a basket as Mankamo, plus her two-year-old child swinging from her shoulder in a piece of bark cloth and a package of chicha in her hand. At one point, she slipped and fell, managing to land in a sitting position so that the baby was unhurt. The load jerked her neck backwards as it fell, and she squashed the package of chicha. Chicha is boiled and mashed manioc. But she hopped up cheerfully, picked herself a new leaf to make the package again, 
set the carrying band on her head once more and started off without a word, or even a whew. When we reached our destination, probably twelve or more miles away, Mancamo set down her load, cooked a big meal, swept the house, chopped wood, walked a mile or so downriver to get a jungle pod for eating, chopped a staircase into the cliff going down to the river, set up a platform over the fire, and spent the whole night smoking fish. I felt ashamed for ever having pitied myself, or for having thought of the Indians as lazy. What's on your schedule today? Do you think of it as a busy day? Rigorous? The kind of day at the end of which you're going to say, what a day? Strangely, I never once heard an Alka say, what a day, or what a trip, or what lousy weather. They accepted life with amazing humility and patience. They took things as they came, and they really seemed to fulfill the rule of St. Benedict. St. Benedict established a monastery many hundreds of years ago, and the rule there was that all was to be done without haste or sloth. That might be a wonderful motto for us to put up in the office, in the schoolroom, in the kitchen. Do it without haste or sloth. Haste makes waste, doesn't it, as the old adage says. And sloth is a terrible waste of time. It's hard for us to do things without haste or sloth. We live in a time when haste seems to be necessary. We have that wistful wish for simplicity, for peace, for time to do things. Well, how much time do you have? You have exactly the same amount of time that Mankamo has. Oh, yes, you say, but she doesn't have to do all the things I have to do. No, and thank God you don't have to do all the things she has to do either. When's the last time you sat up all night smoking meat? Because you had to. I mean, they depend on that, you know. It's a matter of survival. It was not recreation. They were not camping for fun. I remember when we came back to the States after having lived with Indians in the jungle, Valerie came home from school one day saying, Mama, how come we never go camping? I said, Val, you know, we've been camping all your life. She said, oh, Mama, that's not what I mean. I mean real camping. Of course, what she meant was the kind that requires about $5,000 worth of equipment. But we have 24 hours in the day. In other words, we have exactly what God has measured out as being sufficient time. There is always time to do the will of God. I can't tell you how comforting that is to me, especially when I come back from a trip and find my desk piled high with stuff that I know I can't possibly get done. The Lord reminds me then, there is always time to do what I want you to do. There is time to do the will of God. It's the same Lord who was in charge of Martha, stewing in the kitchen, worrying about much serving. It's the same Lord who is Lord of the Alcas. It's the same Lord who knows all about what has to be done in your office, in your job, in your house, in your garage, on the lawn, in the garden. Where is your work? For whom do you do it? 
pray that the Lord will make you a faithful steward of the time that he gives you. And your time will be more efficiently used, believe me, if you will stop sometimes, sit down, breathe slowly, consciously, and lift up your hands. Take five. Pray. Calm down. When I was living there with the Alcas, watching what they did, being constantly amazed at the energy that they had, such small people they were compared to me, so industrious, so wise in the ways of the jungle, so cheerful, so uncomplaining. I was rebuked many times with the realization of how much I complained about things, how much I thought about what I would like to change. Then my presence there was an endless diversion for the Alcas. They didn't have very many diversions, but I certainly was one of them. Here was this freak in their midst, this foreigner. A pitiful color. They'd never seen anybody the color of me, sort of pinkish white. My hair, they said, looked like palm fiber. My eyes like a jaguar's. They were always asking me, what's this? They would pick up my ballpoint pen or my notebook or my plastic bowl. What is this? What's it made of? Where did you get it? Who made it? Then they would ask me, can you weave a hammock? Here, try making this pot. Come on down and let's catch fish with our hands. Let's go out and look for wild honey. I couldn't do any of those things. They would throw up their hands and say, well, what can you do? Well, there were a few things I could do. I could show them the National Geographic. Now, that was the most exciting thing that happened in the month. We would get mail dropped to us by parachute from the airplane, and when the National Geographic came, the house would be crowded. Everybody would come in and want me to explain each and every picture. You can be sure my vocabulary was severely strained in trying to explain the pictures of different cultures all over the world from the National Geographic. I was amazed at how they could remember practically every word I said. They would repeat it verbatim to the next person. I began to have a very deep respect for what's called oral tradition. Then my little daughter Valerie kept herself endlessly occupied, not just with the coloring books and the dolls that people sent her in the mail. She would prefer to build fires, to play with knives. Can you imagine how her grandmothers loved hearing that her favorite occupations were playing with fires and knives? Well, one day I kept a diary of what she did in a day. This is what I wrote. She spent the morning bathing, fishing, cleaning weeds, cutting papaya stalks to make toy blowguns, helping the girls roll logs off the airstrip, tending her can of tadpoles. This afternoon, she's upriver in the canoe with Kimo and the boys, watching them spear fish. After lunch, she went with Iniwa, a boy of about ten, to dig sweet potatoes on the beach. Then he took her to the plantain patch where he cut the blossoms from some of the trees. There's a drop of nectar at the base of each, which the children love to suck. I'm thankful today that Valerie has a wealth of things which matter far more than a clean bed, a dry house, shoes, starched dresses, or visits to museums. 
She has the love of God, the river running by her bed at night, and the stars shining where she can see them as she lies down. She has the joy of misty dawns in the forest, of night birds and crickets and monkeys, of brown, naked children who are simple and unaffected, of little pets, tiny green birds, yellow birds, brown birds, diminutive monkeys, all tamed by the Aukas who seem to know and understand their ways and are forever patient and unforgetful in caring for them. What does your day hold this morning, this afternoon, this evening? Here's a little poem that may speak to you today. It is his will that I should cast my cares on him each day. He also tells me not to cast my confidence away. But oh, how foolishly I act, if taken unawares, I cast away my confidence and carry all my cares. Casting all your care upon him, for it matters to him about you. Gateway to Joy 129, living one day at a time. Later, we'll hear about the missionary's job. First, though, let's hear from John Hansen, who did the theme music for this series. John? I guess one of the behind-the-scenes stories that that you guys haven't heard is, and the the one I'm familiar with, is is doing the music for the intro and I think when I was when I was putting it together, I wanted to kind of reflect my feeling of both uh, liveliness but stability when I think of Elizabeth. That uh, has has kind of this like um, sincerity, and yet also getting you to think outside of maybe uh, what you're how you're used to thinking or in new ways. Yeah, and I think I think that's important to know about Elizabeth is that it wasn't necessarily all the things and the amazing things she said, but but more that her life was a, a sincere life, and she wanted to live before God. She wanted to do God's will like every every moment. And I hope to to follow in that in, in some little way to be able to um, to learn from that and to apply that in my life. Uh, Thanks much for listening. Um, Enjoy Elizabeth Elliot's podcast. Musician John Hansen, the one who did the theme music for this series. Later on, we hear from Elizabeth's brother, Tom Howard. He'll talk about laughter, books, media, attention, composure, and accents. That's later today. Right now, though, The Missionary's Job, Gateway to Joy, 130. How would you describe the job of a missionary? Do you have some romantic ideas of, of what it would be like to be a missionary? Does a missionary go to some foreign land and live out in the jungle? Or how about this? Would this be a good way to describe the missionary's job? To make the truth visible. Here's Elizabeth Elliot. Missionaries' work has been explained in various ways. My brother Dave, Dave Howard, does a lot of traveling around the world and visiting missionaries. He's been a missionary himself. And one day, speaking to a student conference, he asked each person to take out a piece of paper, and he said, I'm going to say a word, and I want you to write down the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear this word. The word was missionary. You wouldn't believe some of the words that he got back. 
a lot of them were very uh, far from being complimentary. But when I think of the missionary's job, I don't really think that in essence it's any different than what all of us who call ourselves Christians are meant to do. I don't call myself a missionary now. I was technically called a foreign missionary for 11 years when I lived in Ecuador. But I don't think my job is a different one. It's to make the truth visible. When Jesus came into the world, we're told that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. In other words, Jesus took upon himself human flesh in order to make visible what God was like. He, Jesus, was the Word, the perfect expression of the invisible God. He was the brightness of his glory, the effulgence of his presence. And we beheld that glory so that Jesus was able to say, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Would someone be able to say, Whoever has seen you has seen God? Do you make the truth of God visible in the way that you live? I was talking to a girl just yesterday who was a very skilled horsewoman on her way to the top in the Olympics. She told me that she wanted to compete as a Christian. God has taken that away from her now. Her horse fell on her in one of the competitions, and she is paralyzed for life. And we talked about the things that God has been teaching her since that experience. Her name is Daphne Cronin. And she told me how God had stripped her of everything and shown her that he has something else for her to do. She said, I thought I was a Christian when I was competing, and I think I did it as a Christian. But she said, I've learned so much in these 10 months. Well, she is making the truth visible there in her wheelchair in a way that she could not possibly have ever done as a horsewoman. She thought that she was going to make the truth visible as an Olympic champion. And I think some Olympic champions have done that as Christians. Little did she know that God had a different job for her. My job for a while was just simply to live with some people to whom I couldn't even speak because I didn't know their language. I had to try in every way I could to demonstrate love. In Hebrews 10, verse 32, we read this. You must never forget those past days when you had received the light and endured such a great and painful struggle. It was partly because everyone's eye was on you as you suffered harsh words and hard experiences, partly because you threw in your lot with those who suffered much the same. You sympathized with those who were put in prison, and you were cheerful when your own goods were confiscated, for you knew that you had a much more solid and lasting treasure." There's not very much in this passage that applies literally to anything that I've been through. I was not suffering harsh words and hard experiences when everyone's eye was on me, but it was painful for me. It was uncomfortable. 
to have everyone's eye on me practically all day, every day. I felt very silly. I felt very inadequate, useless. And sometimes I said, Lord, what am I really supposed to be doing here? What is this missionary thing all about? And one of those long, silent evenings as I sat in my hammock, fanning my fire, thinking about what God had intended for me in sending me to such a place, I was asking the Lord, what is my job? And I found a verse in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10, that I had never noticed before. This is what it says. You are my witnesses, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you might believe me and understand that I am he. And it struck me there that I was his witness, not that they might know, but that I might know. God had things to teach me in putting me in that place, whereby I was going to make visible in ways that I could not even predict the truth of God. But it was my job to get to know him, and the effects of my knowledge of God were God's business. My job was to learn. Learn the language, learn the jungle, learn the trails, learn the foods, learn the people, but in that process to learn to know God. I think that's what we're all supposed to be doing every day of our lives because, you know, there really isn't anything very important in the whole of life other than knowing God. That's what it's about. Now, what kind of changes was I hoping that my presence with the Alka Indians might bring about? I really didn't know what to look for. Well, you might say, isn't it obvious that you'd want savage killers to stop killing people? Well, yes, but as a matter of fact, they stopped killing people long before they knew anything about the gospel, simply because they had found out that they had made a great mistake in thinking of us. They had thought we were cannibals. They killed my husband and the other four missionaries in 1956 because they thought they were cannibals. They found out that that was nonsense, and so they quit killing people. That had nothing to do with their understanding of the gospel. Some people would say, well, wouldn't you expect naked people to put clothes on? Well, they put clothes on too, but not because we told them to, just because we were wearing clothes. They thought it might be a good idea. It would keep the bugs off maybe part of their bodies anyway. So I was down to some very fundamental questions. What kind of changes would I hope for? In my book, The Savage, My Kinsman, I've written this. I note that many of our civilized sins are conspicuous by their absence. I noticed almost no vanity or personal pride among the Alcas, no covetousness, avarice, or stinginess. The men were not lazy or selfish with the spoils of their hunting. When a man brought back an animal, it was divided among his own family, his sisters if they had no other man to look after them, and any widows who needed some meat, plus Rachel and Valerie and me three non-productive foreigners. The Apostle Paul had to write specifically to the Corinthian church to rebuke them for not caring properly for the widows. The Alka was doing this without knowing any law but his own conscience. 
Kind of amazing, isn't it, for people that are called savages? And then I went back to Galatians 5, where there's a list of how people behave without the Spirit of God and how they behave with the Spirit of God. Here's the list. The activities of the lower nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity of mind, sensuality, worship of false gods, witchcraft, hatred, strife, jealousy, bad temper, rivalry, factions, party spirit, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. I looked at that list. I looked at the Aukas. And to be quite honest, very few things on that list seem to be evident in the lives of the Aukas. Sexual immorality was punished by death. That's a very effective deterrent. There was very little sexual immorality. As for the worship of false gods, they had no form of worship at all. No party spirit, no rivalry, no bad temper. I never saw any jealousy. They'd never heard of drunkenness until they met the Quechua Indians. And then I read that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, fidelity, tolerance, and self-control. And so I began to pray that the Lord would really produce those fruits in these people. Not that I was to spell out the ways particularly in which they were to work, but that the Spirit of God would reveal to them the changes that he wanted to make. In other words, it was not my job to impose American 20th century culture on a group of Stone Age people. It was not my job to give them American Christianity. It was my job to give them Christ. My job to live as a Christian is supposed to live among them and make visible in my life, even before I could speak to them, what it means. I had a precious treasure. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that they might have life and have it more abundantly. They didn't know about this, so that's what I was there for. Someday I hoped to be able to tell them. I think sometimes of what it would be like to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, next to Alcas. How would they be judged? What about me? Gateway to Joy 130, The Missionary's Job. Well, our time together is nearing the end, but first we have about five minutes to hear from Tom Howard as he talks about laughter, books, media attention, composure, and accents. Elizabeth's brother, Tom Howard. Somehow, even in the midst of the family hurly-burly, we were six children, which would arise amid the uproarious laughter that often marked the household. Somehow, no matter what was going on, Betty and I could always catch each other's eye in an exchange which said, I know exactly what you are thinking and how you're feeling right now. The thousands of people who became aware of her when her husband, Jim Elliott, was killed in Ecuador, and then, as the years went by, those who were affected by her writings and speeches, these people might see her as a sort of heroic, almost Olympian figure. And that is not entirely a wrong impression. 
She was all of that, certainly. I think our parents were always a bit awed by her, even before she became well-known. But she had an extraordinary capacity for laughter. She would laugh loudly and helplessly, for example, over our father's tales of the pratfalls that seemed to bedevil his footsteps, and at our oldest brother, Phil, who was an irrepressible mimic, especially of Scottish or Norwegian or Philadelphia accents. She laughed at sheer wit, certain writers like Joyce Grenfell and Cornelia Otis Skinner. She laughed at radio comedians, and she laughed at the general drollery that marked our family life. I should add here that she herself was an irrepressible mimic, regaling us all with her imitations of remarks that she might hear at the grocers or on the street or wherever people gathered. She especially liked regional accents, the local South Jersey twang or the Yankee Argo that we heard every summer in Franconia, New Hampshire. Over the years, she came increasingly to look to me to tell her what to read. While she was still in Ecuador after Jim's death, I'd send her books by Kierkegaard or Paul Tillich, Dostoevsky, John Updike, Francois Sagan, and so forth. And as time went on, the works of Cardinal Newman and the Russian Orthodox theologians Alexander Schmemann and Callistas Ware. I would guess that Amy Carmichael would be very near the top of her list. I think that perhaps our father's manifest love for what he called the great hymns of the Church had instilled in her, as in me, an appreciation of the dignity, weight, and majesty of forms of worship that have been hallowed by long usage. In 1956, she became the focus of attention in the media. Life and Time magazines had articles about her and followed her entry with her small daughter, Valerie, into the Alka tribe in 1958. She was, in this connection, flown to New York and found herself swept into that world of news and publishing. She found that world vastly intriguing and, in some sense, sympathetic. <clears throat> the non-religious publishers and photographers found themselves bemused by this woman straight from the jungle and the world of Christian missions, so manifestly civilized and at ease among them. Her aplomb pleased and, I think, startled them somewhat. She knew how to hold her fork. That was Elizabeth Elliot's brother, Tom Howard, and it was good to hear from him today. Well, it looks like our time together is coming to an end very quickly. Let me thank you for letting us come into your home, your office, and maybe out getting some exercise wherever we found you today. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliot Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out all the resources available at elizabethelliot.org. Find a lot there at elizabethelliot.org. Until next time, may God remind you daily that you are loved with an everlasting love, and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>